Today is the season finale of our Allegiance series. And what I want to do today to begin this morning is I want to tell you a story. And some of you may already know it, some of the facts of the story, but it might be new to some others of you. But uh, I think it's one of the most important historical events that many Christians don't know about, but explains so much of what is happening all around us right now. So once upon a time, Christianity was newborn a newborn faith in the world. For 300 years after the birth of Christ, the Holy Spirit moved across what was known as the Roman Empire, just in all corners, through the hearts of men and women, throughout the Roman Empire, throughout Arabia, across northern Africa, throughout Europe, all the way up into the, what's, you know, the British Isles today. And the body of Christ, in those first 300 years, the body of Christ, the church, grew by leaps and bounds, just in in ways you could not possibly script. And it grew all without a single Christian army conquering any lands or holding anyone at gunpoint saying convert or else. It, It all grew without a single governor or president or mayor or anything like that enforcing any Christian laws on any town. In fact, the church flourished in secret behind the scenes while being persecuted, often horribly persecuted and harassed by the people who held power. And how did it flourish in this way, even under such horrible conditions? It flourished because they were faithful to their allegiance to God, and they became famous for their sacrificial love for one another. Meanwhile, in the halls of power in uh, the city of Rome, there was a civil war brewing, and uh, it was a battle for the throne. It was a battle for the title of Caesar. The Caesars were always, you know, one would come up and they'd get assassinated, another one would bump the other one off. Well, this was no different. There was a, a real t- uh, battle going on between men who craved power, who craved conquest and all the stuff that men have always craved. And, and on one side was the Western emperor Maximius, Maxentius, sorry, Maxentius. And at this time, Rome had become so big and so unwieldy, like I said, all the way from the British Isles to North Africa to Egypt to from left to right. It was so big that it really was kind of being ruled by like four different guys at the same time. But Maxentius is the general in the West, centered there in Rome. On the other side of this battle that was brewing was a general from the East who wanted to proclaim himself emperor by the name of Constantine. You probably have heard that name. Both of these guys, Maxentius and Constantine, are contending for the imperial throne. They're contending for ultimate power. And in the year 312, there is a a definite battle about to break out between their armies. And here's where the legend goes, and it is a legend, that on October 27, Constantine has a vision. Now, nobody but Constantine knows if this is true. He said it was true towards the end of his life, and that's one of the things that makes this a little iffy. The facts of the case are a little iffy here. Some scholars question whether it ever happened, because really the legend didn't become popular until after his death. So the reliability of this is a little sketchy, I have to admit. But regardless, the legend goes that the night before the battle, Constantine has a vision, and he has a vision of the cross in the sky, in the heavens, with these words, in this sign you shall conquer. He sees a cross, in this sign you shall conquer, and of course conquer being a euphemism for kill. And so Constantine, looking for any edge he can, he can get in this war, he commands his army that night to have the Christian symbol of the cross 
affixed to all of their weapons of war. They, they paint the cross on all of their shields. And the very next day, Constantine meets Maxentius in the Battle of the Milvian Bridge there at the Tiber River. That bridge is still there. I think there's a Starbucks there. You can go and visit it. <laughs> the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, huge event, as history tells us, on October 28, AD 312, Constantine defeats Maxentius and he becomes emperor of a united Roman Empire. Very soon after that, he's able to unify this entire huge empire, one of the most powerful men to that point who had ever lived. So in this moment, 1,700 years ago, this happened. It's considered one of the most important events in the history of Western civilization, but especially in the history of Christendom. And it's still quite debated among church scholars. It's, it's a controversial event because after this, what happens is Constantine establishes Christianity as a favored religion, something that had never been done before. All of a sudden, literally almost overnight, it went from being just persecuted. You were just dragged out of your house. You could be killed, and you couldn't say anything about it. All of a sudden, it becomes one of the favored religions of the empire. It eventually, soon after this, becomes the state religion empire-wide with the Treaty of Milan, Edict of Milan. Now, here's some interesting things. Constantine was not a Christian uh, at, this, at that point. Constantine had a Christian mother named Helena, and he had a pagan father who was a general. So Constantine always lived in this tension between his, you know, his peace-loving Christian mother and his, his general pagan father. Um, and Constantine, historians agree that he was a brilliant politician. He always kind of had a, a foot in both camps. He figured out pretty quickly that persecuting religion, persecuting Christianity wasn't doing any, any good. It was only growing. And so Constantine always was able to sort of walk the line between favoring Christianity and allowing other pagan religions. He, he sponsored the, the building of many churches throughout the empire. He also sponsored the upkeep of pagan temples. He was doing all this at the the same time. And what's really interesting is that in spite of his vision and this victory, he doesn't become a Christian for many, many years. And, and this first so-called Christian emperor, he appeared to understand that there was kind of a conflict between being a Christian and doing kind of what was needed to preserve his power as emperor. Constantine knew that there was a good deal of dirty work ahead of him, and so it's said that he delayed his baptism. He delayed becoming a Christian. He's like, okay, I like Christianity, but I'm not going to become a Christian just yet. Uh, he, his official conversion didn't happen until his deathbed, until he had done everything he wanted to do. I think Constantine kind of understood that you really can't claim to be a follower of the Prince of Peace uh, and simultaneously be the emperor of, of this uh, violent empire. And in fact, even after giving uh, favored status to Christianity, uh, throughout his reign, he ordered the occasional execution of family members that he thought maybe were rivals to the throne. So an interesting guy. By this sign, you shall conquer. In hoc signo winkis. By this sign, you will conquer. It became famous on the crest of the Knights Templar, who was one of the fiercest orders back in the Middle Ages. By this sign, you shall conquer. And for all the, the good that Constantine's revolution seemed to, at the moment, bring to Christians. Like I said, it's a controversial event. It's, it's debated still among scholars and historians. 
because it, it seemed to bring some good. I mean, you could just put yourself in those Christians' shoes for a second. They no longer faced daily persecution for their faith. This had to just be an answer to prayer. This had to be just feel like the greatest thing that could possibly happen. But it turned out that was the beginning of killing in the name of the cross. Killing in the name of the cross. And it signaled a really huge departure from the entire flavor of Christianity for those 300 years. The, the, it was a nonviolent peace tradition that the, the church had for 300 years, for three centuries. And at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge there, something shifted in the attitudes of Christians from primarily being citizens of the kingdom of God to being citizens of the empire in the name of God. The church of Christ was transformed overnight by political power. It became eventually, like I said, the state church in Rome. And with a few, within just a few years of that happening, that state church would regularly oversee the imprisonment and torture of heretics. Uh, religious executions of non-Christians, uh, Jewish people, would become commonplace. And, and over the centuries, we, we, there were church-sponsored wars and crusades. You know, that's very famous, the crusades. There were church-sponsored genocides in the Middle East and Eastern Europe and even into the Americas. Church-sponsored persecution of Jews right up into, you know, we get to the 20th century. And what do we have in the 20th century? We have two world wars in Europe where baptized Christians on both sides of the fighting lines are slaughtering one another by the millions in the name of national allegiance, all committed by Christians who believed that they had God's favor behind them. In his book, A Farewell to Mars, Pastor Brian Zahn says, every empire of men is built upon a lie, and the lie that their empire has God on its side. So a thousand years later, what happens? About a thousand years later, we get the Protestant Revolution, Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And it rose up to correct, you know, all of the wrongs, the, the Catholic excesses, they called it. They wanted to correct these things. And what did they do when they were able to wrestle power away from the Catholics in government? They burned heretics, they chopped off heads, they went to war, and they shed blood against those who threatened their political power which is always what happens when the church gets in bed with Caesar, right? When the church gets in bed with Caesar, when the church grasps at political power, or when the political powers, you know, they get smart and they enlist the church. They enlist the cross, the very symbol of God's love and his mercy and grace and reconciliation of mankind, and they use that to legitimize the empire's rule, the empire's violence. We're still battling this constant temptation to meld Christian faith with political power. See, never forget, when you go back to those very early days of, of Christianity, the Christians who were persecuted, they were, those early Christians were not persecuted for what we would think of as, as their religious doctrines. Like we would think, what was their beliefs? And, and or, you know, just the way they, they taught and the Romans persecuted them for that. Turns out, it's really interesting, if you look at history, the Roman Empire had more or less an, a pretty good amount of religious freedom. They sort of had to. They, they kind of had to offer it or it would have been ungovernable across the empire. Remember, they're going into all these different countries. They're governing, governing lands that spoke different languages, peoples who had different religions and all this kind of thing. 
And so they didn't really go in and require that you worship the Roman gods. What they didn't allow was for any rival to the Roman emperor. That's what was not allowed. And so the Roman Empire was pretty tolerant about religion, considering uh, they could care less if we taught, uh, you know, that you invite Jesus in your heart, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. The Romans would be like, knock yourself out. That sounds really pretty. Jesus as your Savior was not a threat to them. What they insisted on was that you confess Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord was the dangerous statement. It was about the crown of the Roman emperor versus the crown of Christ. That's what created the problem for Romans. So you have to understand how provocative it was for the Christians back then to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Lord was an actual emperor, imperial title. It was an actual title uh, granted to the emperor by the Senate. And so when Christians are saying Jesus is Lord, by implication, what they're saying is Caesar is not. And this was viewed as very dangerous, as we can imagine, very subversive. And in fact, for the first 300 years of the church, it was generally understood that even to be baptized into the local church, you publicly swore off any allegiance to Caesar or to the Roman government. And you could, so you could understand why Christians were persecuted, why they were held in suspicion, right? Those antisocial Christians. But with Constantine, now we have something different. We have this fusion of the kingdom of Christ and the empire of Rome, and things start to get really complicated, right? They get messy. And so what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus when you've got uh, a Christian emperor? Well, we'll still say Jesus is Lord like in church and stuff, like you and I, but, you know, we have Caesar, and now Caesar's a Christian, and we're still saying Caesar is Lord. So as Brian Zahn writes, in effect, what we've done is demoted Jesus from Lord and King to Secretary of Afterlife Affairs. Jesus' job is to get us into heaven when we die. In the meantime, we'll let Caesar run the world, and not only will we let Caesar run the world, the church will be there as a chaplain to endorse him and bless him and affirm his wars and his campaigns. So, when we step back and view what's happening today, a little more in light of history, then it's easier for us to be aware of how complicated things have gotten for those of us who still boldly declare, we declare without a doubt, 2,000 years later, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Because we still find ourselves with that old temptation of divided allegiance. It's always there, a divided allegiance, right? It's still being stretched out to us for the church to get in bed with the empire. It's the old ring of power, right, for you Tolkien heads. And it is seductive. It's easy for us to forget who we are when we are at our most influential in our society. We're actually, that's when we're being the most aliens and exiles, and we're being ambassadors and missionaries. That's when we are at our most influential. The hands and feet of God, when we're being a voice untempted by that power so that we can speak prophetically to power. Oh, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's power seductive. Proximity to power, the photo op in the White House, the candidate for office who wants to stop by your church and give a speech. Oh, yeah. 
right? It's a chance to be made to feel significant, the chance to actually be in charge and to make laws that, you know, force all those other people to behave more like Christians, even when they're not, even when maybe we're not doing anything to woo them toward a relationship with Christ. It's seductive. In The Lord of the Rings, you got Boromir. You remember Boromir? Boromir the Brave. He's a good guy. He's brave, right? He just wants to do the right thing. He wants, he starts to want to take the ring, though. And he says, I just, I want to take the ring, which is like this toxic, terrible thing. If you don't know the story, you don't want the ring. But he starts to want it. It starts to work on him because he starts to think, oh, what all I could do with it. It's so powerful. I want to use it for good. And it starts to take over his mind. But see, we all think that we can handle the power. I think a lot of evangelicals today in our camps are, are still saying this. We're saying, you know, even after all this time, this time, Yes, after a thousand repeated failures of the church achieving political power and then losing their souls, we'll do it differently. We'll do it differently. But we know better. We know better because every Boromir turns into Gollum. Every Holy Roman Empire turns into crusades and inquisitions and witch burnings because that's what power does because it's the opposite of the way of Christ. It's just the opposite of the way of Christ, however much we think we can do it right this time. And instead of being salt and light, that city on a hill we talked about last week, we're just acting like another conquering Caesar with crosses painted on our shields. And that's what this series has been about, waking up to what's been going on, to what's going on right now, what's going on today all around us, and waking up so that we have the courage to refuse that toxic ring being offered and instead be the people who hand over our crowns to the king, the true king. That king who, by the way, as we mentioned before, was offered the same temptation from the devil to be given all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus wisely refused that ring of power. So, I don't know, what makes us think we can handle wielding it if Jesus refused it? Now, in order to help us kind of see through this, uh, through this mess, because we got like 1,500 years of like toxic mess that we've got to like cleanse our minds from, and so we're going to do it in about 20 minutes. We're just going to get all better. So here we go. Toxic religion, right, from, from Constantine to national, uh, Christian nationalism today. Uh, I want to I go back to the founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, and see with fresh eyes what he shows us about our relationship with the world around us. I really, I'm a firm believer that knowing a little history can help us, you know, avoid the pitfalls of repeating some of it. So, when Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, the Jewish people were living in one of the most awful times of their nation's history. We're talking about the year 1 AD. Um, and so, this is terrible. After centuries of enduring slavery, the Jews, you know, you probably know their story. They've been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. They've been conquered and, you know, brought into exile from the, by the Babylonian Empire. Then the Persian Empire they had to go through. And then they're conquered again. They get home. And then they get conquered again by the Greek Empire. And now they are utterly absorbed in the biggest, baddest empire that, superpower that has ever existed up to then, the Roman Empire. And Jesus arrives on a, in a society that is just this powder keg of, of anger and hopelessness and shame. This is just the mood of the country. None of us could possibly relate to that, right? A whole nation of people going, what has happened? How did it get this way? It wasn't supposed to be this way. We were God's chosen people. 
this is supposed to be special. We're a special place. We're, you know, we're the city on the hill. How are things, how, how have they gotten so bad? And so what's happened in that year, 1 AD, is the Jewish people have aligned themselves now in different groups. Each one of these groups has kind of like an explanation for what's wrong in society and, and what the solution to the problem is. Uh, a lot like political parties today, we can imagine. But in, in his day, there are four big ones. There are kind of these four big political groups. And uh, here's a fun game. As we're going through these, kind of notice who you probably would like really associate with if you were back in that day. I was doing this too. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll definitely be that guy. Anyway, one of the groups were known as the Zealots. The Zealots said, the reason we're oppressed is that we're passive, we're cowardly, and if we would just have the courage to rise up and fight, God will give us the victory, right? If we are willing to slit a few Roman throats, right, launch a revolution, well, God will help us defeat Rome just like he helped David defeat Goliath. So these are the hawks, you know, we would call them today, the, the warmongers. Really, a lot of them were like terrorists who were ready for a little jihad. And for them, the best way out of the mess was to spill some blood, Another group was known as the Herodians. The Herodians, these guys were supporters of Herod. Herod was this guy, he was kind of a puppet king over the region right back then. He was like, he was considered half Jewish by the Jews. Uh, he was a pro-Roman. And so he was just this smarmy little guy nobody liked. But the Herodians favored uh, supporting this puppet ruler. They thought the zealots were just stupid and unrealistic and dangerous. They were going to mess it up for everybody. And they, they said, you zealots have no idea how powerful Rome is, right? To rebel is suicide. Resistance is futile. You'll, you'll be crushed. No, no, no. They, what the Herodians said is instead we should try our best to please our Roman occupiers, play the game, all right? Cooperate. Let's get along. Maybe make a little profit on the side, you know? Things will be good for us. Maybe we can gain some political leverage while we're at it. This is the safe, sensible way. These are the Herodians. Another tribe was the Pharisees. We hear a lot about them in the New Testament. Jesus is always engaging with Pharisees. The Pharisees had a religious prescription uh, uh, to the problem. The Pharisees said the reason we're suffering like this is because we haven't obeyed the Bible's teaching. And if we would just become purer, be more faithful, right? If we prayed harder, if we better did the temple rituals correctly, right? If we were more faithful, and if, and if we got rid of sin, we got to get rid of sin. We need to be fewer prostitutes, fewer drunks in the streets. We need to outlaw sin again. Then the Messiah would come. He'd find us worthy. So the answer for the Pharisees was religious purity and stricter adherence to the old Jewish law. And then there was a fourth group, and they were called the Essenes. The fourth group was the Essenes. They thought everybody, all the other three, they thought they were all delusional. Instead, the Essenes said, you know what? The only way to please God is just leave all this behind. All the society is corrupt. All the, even the religious system is corrupt. Politics is hopeless. Even normal Jewish life is compromised. Instead, we just need to go out into the desert, create like an alternative society, you know, something more spiritual and isolated. You know, we would say unplug and get off grid. That's these guys, right? Just, just withdraw from, you know, get off of Facebook and move out into the woods. We'll, we'll homeschool our kids. We'll sew our own clothes, can our own peaches. I can tease homeschoolers because I, I have a, a homeschooler kid, so yeah. 
Some of, some of us are, are some interesting folks to meet, let me tell you what. But these groups, these, the, the Essenes, these guys fled to the wilderness, and they created whole new communities while they awaited for the Messiah who would come and burn it all to the ground and start his futuristic kingdom. That's what their, their thing was. The Essenes believed that they were the last remnant generation of the end times generations. Culture, they believed, was just too sick to be healed, so let's head for the mountains and live there by ourselves. So you have these four groups that are kind of all uh, vying for people's, you know, loyalties and making their arguments, and you have these groups arguing, vying for respect and authority like political parties do today. And the zealots would engage in some form of terrorism over here and, you know, strike out and kill some Roman soldiers. And the Herodians would denounce their actions and swear even greater allegiance to Rome. Um, The Pharisees would scold both of them for not being holy enough and launch into an attack on drunks and prostitutes with hellfire sermons. And the Essenes would just uh, head out out into the desert uh, to write really strange poetry and wait for God to destroy the world. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus arrives and people are anxious to hear which group he's going to be with. Which group is he going to side with? Are you with them or are you with us? Are you for us or against us? And they're always asking him these questions. So many of the questions, if you read the Gospels and you read them, uh, you know, not just, yes, they're scripture, but also these are, you know, they're real. They're, They're a historical record of what was going on in society. These questions were things that people wanted to know. Where did he land in the world? And Jesus stands up really boldly and he starts declaring things like, the kingdom is at hand. And the crowd's kind of confused by this. And they're like, okay, the kingdom's great, but what's your plan for saving us from the Romans? Which party is the one God's behind? And Jesus keeps giving out these strange sort of contradictory signals. And so if you were there, you might be thinking, well, you know, he's got a lot of courage to speak up in public and speak out. Maybe he's a zealot. Maybe he's a zealot. He's, you know, he's building this small army of, well, they're fishermen. So, you know, they're going to like fight the Romans with their nets or something. I don't know. But, when the, but on the other hand, when the Romans come along, waving their spears and yelling at everybody to disperse, Jesus doesn't call on the crowd to kill the infidel or anything like that. He just quietly walks away. When the crowd follows Jesus outside the gates into the meadow, Jesus says things like, do you really want to know who's going to be blessed? It's not the powerful ones with lots of money and lots of weapons. He says, no, the poor will be blessed. It's not the ones who will shout the loudest and get their way. It's the meek that will be blessed. It's not the ones who kill their enemies. It's actually the ones who are persecuted for doing what's right. It's not the ones who play it safe, but those who stand up for the sake of God bravely. It's not the manipulative, but it's the pure in heart. Not those who make war, but those who make peace. And you're thinking, well, okay, you can't be a zealot because, you know, they're all about power and violence. You can't be a Herodian because they would never use anti-Roman language like kingdom of God. You know, that's, that's dangerous language. They wouldn't talk about standing up for justice. Um, they would just say, you know, that God wants us to just honor our emperor and be quiet. And it's clear he's not in a scene because they wouldn't even bother preaching to the rest of us. They, they think we're all lost causes. So I'm not sure where he fits in. Well, maybe if he's a Pharisee, because he talks a lot about holiness. But then Jesus comes along and he says, well, you must surpass the Pharisees in your pursuit of goodness. Jesus says, even the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before the Pharisees will. And you're thinking, What? More holy than Pharisees? This guy's trying to out-Pharisee the Pharisees? Like, what is this? 
Jesus seems to be this bundle of contradictions. He lives this holy life and he talks about being holy, but we see him at a dinner party with, you know, prostitutes and drunks and tax collectors, those guys who collaborate with the Romans. And the Essenes are out there, you know, living in the desert, like living on locusts and beet juice or something like that. And this Jesus seems to enjoy good food and having a good time with friends. And as your curiosity grows and you continue to listen to Jesus talk about his new kingdom, you can't stop wondering about him. What is, where is this guy coming from? Everyone's angry and fearful because of the signs of the times all around us, but this guy, he just seems to smile a lot. He's joyful. I mean, he's even chill when the Roman are questioned him. Everything you thought you understood about the world is just turned upside down when it comes to Jesus. And instead of condemning sinners and soldiers and making them the scapegoat for all of our problems, he says that we're to love them and accept them as God's beloved children. There was a Roman soldier who comes to him one time. The Roman soldier comes and asks Jesus to pray for his servant who's sick. And everybody around is probably thinking, oh, I bet he's going to let that soldier have it. He's going to be like, who are you? You know, you live by the sword, you know, and all this kind of... No, Jesus says, I haven't seen so much faith in all of Israel as this man right here. This isn't just Jesus coming and telling us which of the parties have it all together, which one should be in power. He's calling for a radical rethinking of what it even means to be in power. He, said, he says all the power of heaven and earth at one time, he said, is all the power has been given to him, but he doesn't use it to take over. He uses it to heal. He uses all this power and authority to cast out devils and heal diseases and forgive. He's not picking sides in the argument. He's saying the argument itself misses the point. And if we're jumping into the argument, he says we are exercising, it, it is a, a, a beautiful exercise in missing the point, you could say, jumping into the argument. What's his alternative? What does he say we're to be doing? He says to seek, receive, and enter into this new reality he calls the kingdom of God. Kingdom, that God's king, his, the king's dome. And he blows everybody's mind by saying, Caesar is not the ultimate authority. He says, culture is not the ultimate authority. Sin is not the ultimate authority. Sickness is not the ultimate authority. Addictions are not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And he's the one who gets our allegiance. He's the one who gets our focus. And, and he's the source of our well-being. He's the source of our joy. He's the source of our gratitude. This Thanksgiving, we're not going to get around the table and look at that beautiful bird and hold hands and close our eyes and say, thank you, government, for all of your blessings. It's all from God. We know it's all from God, right? And Jesus says, if you want to live in this new reality, you're not going to storm the palace and slit some Roman throats, some soldiers like the zealots want to do. Instead, he says, you know what? If a, if a Roman soldier slaps you, you just turn the other cheek, pew, pew, right? Like some kind of nonviolent jujitsu counter move. How about this one? He says, if someone forces you to carry a backpack for a whole mile, just carry it a second mile as an expression of your own free will, right? It forces him to acknowledge the injustice of his actions. Just let me keep carrying that for you. 
See, people back then, just like now, they see this binary choice. It's, what are we going to do when it comes to oppression? We either fight back or we just give in and accept it, I guess. You know, there, there's only two things. And Jesus keeps offering this third way, this third way that nobody expects, this creative gesture that it opens up all kinds of possibilities. And every time the, tri- the crowd tries to get him to choose between this binary choice, fight back or give up, react this way or that way, do we pay taxes or not, right? Hey, Jesus, we're going to execute this lady we caught in adultery. Is she guilty or innocent? And Jesus says, actually, who among you is innocent? And they're like, oh, that's awkward. (laughs) And they all walk away. This is the Jesus we serve. This is the Jesus we serve when our culture demands of us. Are you in this party or that? Are you for us or against us? This team or our team? Are you a warmonger or a capitulator? And we come and we say, actually, we don't believe that's got to be all there is. That can't be all there is. We believe there is always a Jesus way. If you're part of the kingdom, he says we don't curse and condemn sinners to hell. We interact with them gently and kindly, refusing to judge them, even inviting them over to our get-togethers, treating them as neighbors. These four groups that Jesus was dealing with, there's a little bit of probably of, of them in all of us. The zealots, they wanted a kingdom where Israel would be free from Rome's oppression because they saw all their problems being Rome. If we were free from Rome's oppression, everything would be good. But Jesus is about liberating people from all oppression, including those of us who look holy on the outside, but we're suffering inside. He wants all of us liberated. He knows Rome is not really the enemy. The Herodians want a kingdom that's safe and secure. It's predictable. It's status quo. And Jesus says, your peace and your security can only be found by trusting in me. Compromising with the world, it may feel like, okay, this is going to give me some security, some predictability in my life. It's just going to leave your soul in perpetual anxiety. Peace only comes from trusting in Jesus. The Pharisees want a kingdom that looks more religious, right? We need to ban certain things. We need to ban, you know, certain sexual behaviors. We need, to, we need the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. We need prayer in schools, and that'll solve everything. We need more rules to ensure purity. And Jesus' message over and over was we need new hearts. All the rules in the world don't change a heart. And he says, in fact, the most pious of us who lust after a neighbor is a sinner, Ouch. Jesus emphasized heart change, not just outward conformity, not just cultural holiness. The Essenes, some of us can relate to them. We, you know, just let's just abandon the whole thing, right? It's hopeless. Let's abandon society, head for the hills, build a fort, and wait out the end of the world. But Jesus' kingdom is about reaching out to people. It's about love, and you can't love if there's nobody to love. If there's nobody there to love, you can't just be a person who's just loving. You got to have an object for your love. That means engaging with the world, bringing heaven down to where they live, and engaging culture, whether it's Jerusalem or the woodlands or a third world village, wherever it is you live. He invites us to not avoid the messiness of the world, 
but to enter into creation as the hands and feet of Jesus. To Jesus' kingdom. He, he just, over and over, he rejects all of the either-or choices that the world offers. Choices that, that lead to death. These either-or choices lead to death and destruction and hopelessness. And when given the choice of the lesser of two evils, or three evils, or four evils, or whatever it is, kingdom people respond, none of the above. None of the above, because Christ has delivered us from hopeless choices. That's good news to somebody in here. He has delivered you from hopeless choices. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus demonstrated in his own life. It's the kingdom he lived and died to bring us. He died for this kingdom. And, and this is what the own, his own disciples couldn't wrap their heads around completely. When they saw their rabbi, and just imagine, I just put myself in their position, I would be just as like, ah, as they would probably, but they saw their rabbi, their beautiful, perfect Savior Jesus, hanging from a cross. It looked like disaster. The whole plan has come to nothing. It's a failure. It's a dead end, the reign of Christ. What they didn't realize was that the cross was actually his coronation. The cross wasn't a roadblock it was the coronation of Christ. What they didn't realize was that on that cross, Jesus is crowned king of a new kind of kingdom. They didn't realize that when the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus by yelling, Hail, King of the Jews, those soldiers were inadvertently the first to declare the truth. He really was king. And when they mocked him by shoving that crown of thorns on his head, they were actually crowning the true king of kings and lord of lords. They didn't realize that. They didn't realize that when they nailed him to the tree and then they stood it up where everyone could see, they were fulfilling his own words that said, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men and women to him. They didn't realize they were walking right into what he said they were supposed to do because the cross became the throne. The cross was the coronation. And at that same time, he was demonstrating what kind of kingdom he's king of. This is a different kind of kingdom. This is not a Constantinian kind of kingdom. This was a kingdom that didn't conquer. It didn't rule by the sword. It ruled by self-sacrificial love. If that's the throne of our king, well, that should tell us this is a different kind of kingdom we're a part of here. This wasn't a throne taken by force. It was not a kingdom established through violence. Therefore, it can never be toppled through violence. We never have to worry about that, no matter how much the anti-kingdoms of the world try to stop it. But the disciples didn't even understand, even when he was hanging there. But on that first Easter morning, well, three days later when the tomb was empty, then the disciples start to understand. Then the disciples start to get it because then they see Jesus raised up with their very own eyes and their despair is turned into this new and living hope. It was only then that they could see clearly the kingdom of God is not like any of the kingdoms of this world when we engage with sinners, guys, we are not fighting for our rights. We're fighting for their lives. That is what we're here for. To do anything else is to waste our opportunity, is to waste while we're here. We are fighting for their lives, their souls. And what the resurrection of Christ proves is that the, the love of God, that self-sacrificial, nonviolent, enemy-embracing love that was manifested on the cross is more powerful than all the anti-kingdoms of the world. It is more powerful than death. It's more powerful than sin. It's more powerful than hate. 
It's more powerful than bombs and bullets and tanks. It's more powerful than any of that. It's more powerful than all the nations. It's more powerful than every military in the world. It's more powerful than any president or prime minister or Caesar. It's more powerful than the devil himself, praise God. And every kingdom and empire that has ever been has come and gone. That Egyptian, that great Egyptian empire it's come and gone. The Babylonians have come and gone. The Assyrians have come and gone. The Greek Empire has come and gone. Even the big Roman Empire has come and gone, right? In the 20th century, you had the Soviets come along. Workers of the world unite. We're going to like change the world, and it'll last for a thousand generations. It lasted about 70 years. The British Empire, it's all. They've all come and gone. They've all come and gone. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom not made of sand, it is not a castle of sand that it's going to be erased by waves of time. The kingdom of God is the castle of the living God whose reign is forever and ever. And it was established, his character is established right there on the cross. It was revealed in that, that love on the cross. His reign is established by his resurrection. And so that kingdom, there will be no end. Amen? Amen. Only after the resurrection could the disciples understand how that famous prophecy that we often read at Christmas time, how it applied to Jesus. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Hallelujah. This morning, we're going to receive communion together. If you grabbed uh, the little elements when you walked in, you can get those ready now. If you didn't, there's some on the little tables back there. I bet there's some back there on that table uh, if you need to grab you one. If you're watching by a live stream, feel free to do this with us at home. Uh, just grab you some, some juice and some bread, and you can partake with us. As you're doing that, I want to ask you a question harkens back to week one of our series, and that is, where is your hope? Where does your hope lie? Where does your hope really lie? Is it, it's another way of asking, where does your allegiance lie? Like we said a few weeks ago, fear is the result of a misplaced allegiance. When we fear, it betrays Somewhere we have misplaced our allegiance because his love casts out fear. So if our allegiance is in the right thing, if our allegiance is in the right person, the right kingdom, then our hope is secure. I'm here to tell you today, your hope is secure. We have nothing really to fear. So if your answer to that first question, that your hope is in, is in you would say, yeah, my hope's in Jesus Christ. And I have to say, it's easy to say, sitting here because we're in church. It's the right answer. You're supposed to say it. But ask yourself honestly, is my hope in Christ? And if you would say, yes, it is, then let me ask this, a second question. Are you putting your hope into action? Because Jesus' way of transforming the world, how did he do it? It was through self-sacrificial love. It wasn't through fear. It wasn't through worry over current events. He didn't transform the world through grasping at power. 
He did it through love. And his love, look how his love is expressed. His love isn't expressed just by like arguing the other side to death. His love isn't expressed in writing really pretty poetry about how much he loves the world. His love is expressed by bleeding for it. He bled for the world. And so we could ask, where are we bleeding? Where are you making sacrifices to further the work that God's called us to do? Where are we making those sacrifices? The sacrifice of humbling yourself. Where are you humbling yourself? Where are you humbling your opinions? You're humbling your rights, humbling your comforts for the sake of the world. See, the kingdom is good news. The gospel is good news, but it requires faith. And faith is another word for faithfulness. The kingdom of God requires all of you. It really does. It requires all of our allegiance. There are no dual citizens in the kingdom of God. It just requires all of us. You and I live every moment of our earthly lives as ambassadors of his kingdom. Amen. So in what respects does your life reflect that of an ambassador? Who would know if they knew you? Who, uh, you know, by being your friend or your neighbor or your workmate, who would know that your allegiance is the kingdom of God? That you see yourself first and foremost as an ambassador of that kingdom. If you're here today and maybe you're a couple, I encourage you to get together with your spouse this week and ask God, Lord, how can we be more of that dynamic duo that you've called us to be for the kingdom? What are ways that we can alter our life, actually change our lifestyle to be a revolutionary blessing to other people? Not just clamor for society to change, to look more like Christians, to look more Christian-y. How can we change to be better, to be more generous, more sacrificial, loving ambassadors for Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower yet, you're listening to this and you're like, man, this Jesus you described, Scott, sounds very compelling. He seems like a very cool dude, but I gotta admit, that's not the same Jesus I see when I see Christians out in the world. If that's you, I would just say, I repent for that. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that's not always the Christians, the, the first face Christians show is the face of Jesus. And I would just say, forgive us and look to the only one who is perfect, and that is Jesus. Because the church is not made up of angels who have flown down from heaven. For some reason, God made the church out of broken people and sinners that he forgives. And he says, now go represent me to the world. Really, us? Yeah. Okay. So you gotta, we gotta have grace for each other, right? And if you're, you're not a Christian and you just look at Christians, you're like, man, they just look like a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, you got it. You, you nailed us. Bunch of hypocrites. But look to the one who is perfect as we are all looking to him, right? Because the goal of the church, I gotta say, I, I've really been rethinking this lately. I, I always thought the goal of the church was to change the world, but now I'm starting to see that that's the, that's the role of Jesus. His role is to change the world. Our role is to help each other look more like Jesus, become more like Jesus, so that people can meet Jesus and he can change the world. Amen. Amen.
Let's pray. Abba Father, we thank you, Lord, for this. Give us the courage today, Lord, to stand for your kingdom, to love like you do. And most of all, we pray, Lord, as you told us in the scriptures, it was proper to do. We pray, dear God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. And as you also taught us to pray, may your son, Jesus Christ, return quickly. Lord, come quickly. And now, dear Lord, we take this bread and this cup today in remembrance of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that cross that was his coronation, the crown of thorns that were placed on his head. It may have been placed there in mockery, but that crown of thorns declared the truth that he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And he has been crowned ruler of this universe. And so in allegiance, we bow to you, Lord God, just as we will someday bow before you and surrender our crowns to you. And we thank you for being our king. Thank you for being our savior, our Lord, the lover of our souls. And Father, forgive us of our sins, all of our sins, the ones we've committed, the sins of, the, the, of neglect. Forgive us, Lord, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of God, the Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. The body of Christ broken for you. Thank you, Lord. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Father. Just praise him for a minute. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy. Thank you that you have not just called us servants, but you've called us sons and daughters. We praise you for that. May we reflect you well to this world, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Give us grateful hearts, Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, would you stand to your feet with me this morning as our prayer partners are coming forward at this time? If there's anything at all you need prayer for, these guys would love to pray with you, whether it's something in your body you need healing for, something financial you have a need, uh, something, a relationship that just needs restoring, uh, come and get prayer. If you want to say yes to Jesus and let him be Lord of your life today for the first time, come and let these guys pray for you. They would love to lead you in that very next step. Amen. This Thanksgiving week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be so merciful to you. Grace and peace. Let's go be kingdom people this week. Amen. Bye-bye.